Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. A young delinquent girl. A cranky old man. A mysterious book bound in the skin of a, a, a baby? Fred, a baby? What? According to rumors only. Well, Fred, Fred, former host Fred Greenhouse is going to be here with me. Hey, Fred, to talk about The Dark Tome. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hello and happy pre-Halloween, everybody. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of audio fiction. Here to join me is our executive producer and former host of the show, Fred Greenhouse. Say hello to the people, Fred. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Uh, great. I've managed to not be uh, absconded by goblins, uh, ripped off by trolls, or turned into any witches through this year, which I consider always an improvement. Yeah, no, anything's better than uh, the incident of 2009. Yeah, I mean, it's Halloween, but you've got to, you know, you can only role play so far. Welcome back to the studio. You like what I did with the place? Uh, yeah, you know, the 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 art is very tasteful addition. Um, I'm kind of wondering what happened to all the goat pelts, but I guess maybe that was a little bit too, uh, you know, barbaric for you or something, David. But, uh, you know, it's it's okay. No, I, I love the goat pelts. I love the goat pelts. Uh, I put them in storage. Yeah, well, you just make sure you put in, like, mothballs or something because uh, odd things yeah, yeah. can happen sometimes, yeah. What has been up? What have you been up to? I feel like you've been pretty busy. Oh, boy. I would like to say I have been uh, off gallivanting the globe in search of great stories, which actually is mostly true, uh, though mm-hmm. that has oddly involved me being locked into a studio for many of these things. So, uh, you know, Barefoot Fred, uh, Field Recording Fred, has been... Uh, mostly in studio for productions. Um, in particular, what you're going to hear today is recorded uh, mostly at an audiobook recording studio with my good friend and colleague, Bill Dufries. So, Fred, what are we going to be playing today? All right. We have the lovely pleasure of introducing you to The Dark Tome with uh, The Devil on the Staircase by Joe Hill. Uh, it's a two-parter. We're going to hear the first part today on today's show. It's a story, well, we, we meet Cassie first, this uh, young teenage girl who enters alternate worlds through this book, and this book lands her on a staircase in rural Italy, uh, turn of the uh, early 20th century, on a staircase that rumors have it lead to hell. Ooh. All right, let's give that a listen. So this is The Dark Tome, Episode 1, Part 1, The Devil on the Staircase. That phrase, books are a gateway to the imagination, well, imagine it was true. Literally true. Yeah, I know. It's the oldest cliche out there. You forget that when you were young, books were like that. No matter where you were, no matter what was going on in the real world, when you opened a book, read those words, you could go to other worlds. And if you've forgotten that, if you think imagination is a toy to be locked in a box when the grown-up world comes crashing in with student loans, 30-year mortgages, and retirement accounts, then you must never have heard the legend of the Dark Tome. I mean, 
I never had either. Not until that May, when I was spending my suspension from school reading to Mr. Gussie in the stale air of Thompson's Memorial Hospital. It was Wilson, but he spoke no longer in a whisper. And I could have fancied that I myself was speaking while he said, You have conquered, and I yield. Yet henceforward art thou also dead, dead to the world and its hopes. In me didst thou exist, and in my death see by this image which is thine own how utterly thou hast murdered thyself. Mr. Gussie? Mr. Gussie! Uh, what, what, what is that crap? Get it out of here! Mr. Gussie, sorry, I, I was, uh... Oh, goddamn Edgar Allan Poe. Come on, Cassie, you know I hate that guy. Long-winded and overrated, if you ask me. Could you find the book I told you about? You told me to fetch you, uh... I told you to bring me the dark tome, not that crap. Give me that book. Okay. <clears throat> Mr. Gussie, what are you doing? Uh, what say of conscience grim indeed? I told you, the book I wanted, it would have had gold letters, the spine as smooth and white as my pale Anglo ass. It would look alive. I didn't see any book like that. Gah, what am I paying you for? You're not. I volunteered. Penance? Because you ripped the hair out of that stupid girl. Well, I didn't... Don't worry. She deserved it. Have you seen the nurse? Good God, are they trying to stab me in here? Nurse! Nurse! You have that clicker right there. Yeah, next you'll tell me I need get an app to get decent service around here. What did I pay into my pension for, if not to get a little help when I was on my deathbed? You had a surgery, Mr. Gussie. You'll be out of here in a week. Not if they kill me first with this horrible food. Nurse! I've got to go, Mr. Gussie. Where to? You got a date? No. Uh, it's going to be something good. You think I'm going to cover for you again after what you pulled last time? What do you mean? If that nurse says I left early, Miss Pearson will flame me. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Go on. Get out of here. I got your back. Is everything okay? Tis not. You trying to kill me here? <laughs> Excuse me. This grape juice. You tried drinking it lately? It's despicable. <laughs> We'd still be giving you milk if you hadn't snuck coffee brandy into the last carton. <laughs> Need something to take the edge off, don't I? You won't even give me the good stuff. Bye, Mr. Gussie. Leaving so soon, Cassie. I'm sorry. Uh, got homework to do. Oh. I told her. She read me plenty for the day. She told me one of my favorite stories. William Wilson. <laughs> uh, of course. See you tomorrow, dear. Bye. Are you ever sit in one of these carts? The blankets, I swear, you make them out of sandpaper. And I should know. I worked in the number 10 mill for 30 years. You but of course, I didn't have any homework to do. I'd been kicked out of school for two weeks already. But I didn't go home either. I couldn't. My mom would be with him, drinking, and things got bad when they got drinking. So that left me with Mr. Gussie's bookshop. The spare key was tucked away in the brass bell outside, next to the plexiglass poster of Stephen King's Misery. It was that poster and the strange mummified hand next to it 
Mr. Gussie said it was a monkey's that kept most of the local kids out of that place. They made up stories and dared each other to go in, swipe a book. Some said there was a time, maybe 30 years ago, when a kid went in and never came out again. I never believed stories like that. The place was filled with paperback novels, stacks of them, with bone-like creases on their spines, names like Kuntz, Matheson, Bradbury. You'd walk past those, worried Section Z for zombies would fall on your head, Whoa. to get to the antique wooden desk in the back, pull back the creaky leather chair, roll up the thrift shop rug, and lift the trap door. Go down to the basement, where the walls got... wobbly. Cobwebs. Down here, no one ever bothered me. I could have my blanket and curl up with a book and be taken away. There were plenty to choose from. Hardcovers, some with a film of dust you could write your name in, ran near to the ceiling. But there was only one book that really mattered. The Dark Tome. Of course, I already knew about the book. He had told me where to find it with impeccable instructions. I had already picked it up, felt the spine that rumor said was stitched from the skins of murdered babies. I had opened it long enough to read a few words and feel how, as the words parted my lips, the book's lettering faintly glowed, and the must of the basement faded away for the smell of salt from distant seas. Mom and school and Mr. Gussie and that gossipy bitch Kathy Skillings faded into nothingness. Last time I'd opened it, I'd shut it immediately. But now, I was ready. I opened the dark tome. Okay. The Devil on the Staircase by Joe Hill. It goes, I was born in Sale Scale, the child of a common bricklayer. The, the village, village of, of my birth, birth nested in, in the highest, sharpest ridges, high above Positano, and in the cold spring, the clouds crawled along the streets like a procession of ghosts. It was 820 steps from Sulescale to the world below. I know. I walk them again and again with my father, following his tread from our home in the sky and then back again. After his death, I walked them often enough alone. It, it worked! It worked! Holy crap, it worked! There it is. The little village. Uh, what did they call it? Uh, Posse... Posse, uh... Positano. Ah! <laughs> no need to be frightened, little girl. Who, who are you? A boy who used to live in this village. Ah, well, I suppose I'm not a boy anymore. Look at it. The olive orchard, the ocean, the stairs. I knew each step of those stairs very well. What happens now? Will you continue reading, or...? I don't know. It is up to you. I have all the time in the world. Uh, okay. Well, the next bit, it goes... Up and down I walked those stairs carrying freight. Yes. Up and down I walked those stairs carrying freight, until with each step it seemed as if the bones in my knees were being ground up into sharp white splinters. 
Are you coming with me? What? Okay. The cliffs were mazed with crooked staircases, made from brick in some places, granite in others. Marble here, limestone there, clay tiles and beams of lumber. When there were stairs to build, my father built them. When the steps were washed out by spring rains, it fell to him to repair them. For years, he had a donkey to carry his stone. After it fell dead, he had a knee. I hated him, of course. He had his cats, and he sang to them, and poured them saucers of milk, and told them foolish stories, and stroked them in his lap. And when one time I kicked one, I do not remember why, he kicked me to the floor and said not to touch his babies. So I carried his rocks, when I should have been carrying school books, but I cannot pretend I hated him for that. I had no use for school, hated to study, hated to read, felt acutely the stifling heat of the single-room schoolhouse, the only good thing in it, my cousin, Lithadora, who read to the little children, sitting on a stool with her back erect, chin lifted high, and her white throat showing. But Antoniello would not listen to reason. He made sure the king would kill Cienzo for his fault and said, Don't stand here at risk of your life, but march off this very instant so that nobody may hear a word new or old of what you have done. A bird in the bush is better than a bird in the cage. Here is money. She's lovely. Yes. I thought so too. I often imagined her throat was as cool as the marble altar in our church, and I wanted to rest my brow upon it as I had the altar. How she read in her low, steady voice, the very voice you dream of calling to you when you're sick, saying you will be healthy again and know only the sweet fever of her body. I could have loved books if I had her to read them to me. Beside me, in the bed. I knew every step of the stairs between Sulescale and Positano. Long flights that descended through canyons and tunnels, bored in limestone past orchards and the ruins of derelict paper mills, past waterfalls and green pools. I walked those stairs when I slept, in my dreams. The trail my father and I walked most often led past the painted red gate, barring the way to a crooked staircase. I thought those steps led to a private villa and paid the gate no mind until the day I paused on the way down with a load of marble and leaned on it to rest, and it swung open to my touch. My father, he lagged thirty or so stairs behind me. I stepped through the gate onto the landing to see where these stairs led. I saw no villa or vineyard below. Only the staircase falling away from me, down among the sheerest of sheer cliffs. Uh, uh, Marco will be so pleased to receive father. this order. Have you ever taken these stairs? How did you open the red gate? 
When he saw me standing outside the gate, he paled and had my shoulder in an instant. It was open when I got here. Don't they lead all the way down to the sea? No. But it looks as if they go all the way to the bottom. They go farther than that. The gate is always locked. Always. Padre Filio Spirito Santo. Padre Filio Spirito Santo. Padre Filio Spirito Santo. And he stared at me, the whites of his eyes showing. I had never seen him look at me so. Had never thought I would see him afraid of me. Lithodora laughed when I told her and said my father was old and superstitious. She told me that there was a tale that the stairs beyond the painted gate led down to hell. I had walked the mountain a thousand times more than Lithadora and wanted to know how she could know such a story when I myself had never heard any mention of it. She said the old folks never spoke of it, but had written the story down in a history of the region, which I would know if I'd ever read any of the teacher's assignments. I told her I could never concentrate on books when she was in the same room with me. She laughed, but when I tried to touch her throat, she flinched. My fingers brushed her breast instead, and she was angry, and she told me that I needed to wash my hands. Sounds like some boys I know, except today no one would have the decency to wash their hands. Hey, we're on the stairs again. Is that... My father. It's a grisly little moment. (gasps) Rather than step on the stray cat... My father stepped out into air and fell 50 feet. After that day, I found a more lucrative use for my donkey legs and yardarm shoulders than hauling those horrid tiles. I entered the employ of Don Carlotta, who kept the terraced vineyard in the steeps of Sulescale. I hauled his wine the 800-odd steps to Positano, where it was sold to a rich Saracen, a prince, it was told, dark and slender and more fluent in my language than myself, a clever young man who knew how to read things, musical notes, the stars, a map, a sextant. Once, I stumbled on a flight of brick steps as I was making my way down with the Don's wine, and his strap slipped and the crate on my back struck the cliff wall, and a bottle was smashed. I brought it to the Saracen on the quay. What is this? Your bottle, sir. I slipped on the rocks. Oh, you drank it? Or you should have. That bottle was worth all you make in a month. Pardon, sir. But... My wages are considered paid, and consider yourself paid well. (laughs) Now go. As he laughed, his white teeth flashed in his black face. I was sober when he laughed at me, but soon enough had a head full of wine. Not Don Carlotta's smooth and peppery red mountain wine, but the cheapest Chianti in the taverna, which I drank with a parcel of unemployed friends, 
Lithodora found me after it was dark, and she stood over me, her dark hair framing her cool, white, beautiful, disgusted, loving face. She said she had the silver I was owed. <laughs> One good, huh? <laughs> what do you mean you have the money? I told Ahmed he had insulted an honest man, and that my family trades in hard labor, not lies. I told him he was lucky that I had not had... Did you call him a friend? A monkey of the desert who knows nothing of Christ the Lord? <laughs> I see you have more use for the silver than you have for me. <laughs> the way that she looked at me then made me ashamed. The way she put the money in front of me made me more ashamed. I almost got up to go after her. Almost. One of my friends asked, Have you heard the Saracen gave your cousin a slave bracelet, a loop of silver bells to wear around her ankle? I suppose in Arab land such gifts are made to every new whore in the harem. You lie! <gasps> Her father would never allow her to accept such a gift from a godless blackamoor. He speaks the truth. The Arab trader is godless no more. Lithodora has taught Ahmed to read Latin. No. <laughs> he claims now to have entered into the light of Christ. He gave the bracelet to her with his full knowledge of her parents as a way to show thanks for introducing him to the grace of our father who art. When my first friend had recovered his breath, he told me... Lithodora climbs the stairs every night to meet with a Saracen in empty shepherd's huts or in the caves. Ah, I heard it's among the ruins of the paper mills. Or sometimes by the roar of the waterfall, wherever they can meet in secret and in such places she is his tutor. And he a firm and most demanding pupil. <laughs> Tell me more of this. He always goes first, and then she ascends the stairs in the dark, wearing the jangling bracelet. When he hears the bells, he lights a candle to show her where he waits to begin the lesson. Perhaps she will teach another lesson tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the cliffs again. What are we doing here? It's cold. I was so drunk. I set out for Lithodora's house with no idea what I meant to do when I got there. I came up behind the cottage where she lived with her parents, thinking I would throw a few stones to wake her and bring her to her window. But as I stole toward the back of the house, I heard a silvery tinkling somewhere above me. She was already on the stairs and climbing into the stars with her white dress swinging from her hips and the bracelet around her ankle so bright in the gloom. My heart thudded, a cask flung down a staircase. Doom, 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 doom. I knew the hills better than anyone, and I ran another way, making a steep climb up crude steps of mud to get ahead of her, then rejoining the main path up to Suleskale, 
I still had the silver coin the Saracen had given her when she went to him and dishonored me by begging him to pay me the wage I was properly owed. I put his silver in a tin cup I had and slowed to a walk and went along shaking his Judas coin in my old battered mug. Such a pretty ringing it made in the echoing canyons, on the stairs, in the night high above Positano and the crash and sigh of the sea as the tide consummated the desire of water to pound the earth into submission. At last, pausing to catch my breath, I saw a candle flame leap up off in the darkness. It was in a handsome ruin, a place of high granite walls matted with wildflowers and ivy. A vast entryway looked into a room with a grass floor and a roof of stars, as if the place had been built not to give shelter from the natural world, but to protect a virgin corner of wilderness from the violation of man. Then again, it seemed a pagan place, the natural setting for an orgy hosted by fawns with their goaty hooves, their flutes and their furred cocks. So the archway into that private courtyard of weeds and summer green seemed the entrance to a hall awaiting revelers for a private bacchanal. He waited on spread blanket with a bottle of the Dom's wine and some books, and he smiled at the tinkling sound of my approach, but stopped when I came into the light. A block of rough stone, already in my free hand. You have come. Yes. No! You killed him! I did not kill him out of family honor or jealousy did not hit him with the stone because he had laid claim to Lithodora's cool white body which he would never offer me. I hit him with the block of stone because I hated his black face. After I stopped hitting him, I sat with him. I think I took his wrist to see if he had a pulse. But after I knew he was dead, I went on holding his hand, listening to the hum of the crickets in the grass, as if he were a small child, my child, who had only drifted off after fighting sleep for a very long time. What brought me out of my stupor was the sweet music of bells coming up the stairs toward us. I leapt up and ran, but Dora was already there, coming through the doorway, and I nearly struck her on my way by. She reached out for me with one of her delicate white hands and said my name, but I did not stop. I took the stairs three at a time, running without thought, but I was not fast enough, and I heard her when she shouted his name once and again. Ahmed! <laughs> 
I don't know where I was running. Chuliscale, maybe, though I knew they would look for me there first, once Lithodora went down the steps and told them what I had done to the Arab. I did not slow down until I was gulping for air, and my chest was filled with fire, and then I leaned against a gate at the side of the path. You know what gate. And it swung open at first touch. I don't want to go down there. But you know it's where the story goes. Besides, I thought no one would look for me here, and I can hide a while. No. No, I thought these stairs will lead to the road, and I will head north to Napoli and buy a ticket for a ship headed to the U.S. and take a new name and start a new... No. No. Enough. The truth... I believe the stairs led down into hell, and hell was where I wanted to go. That was The Dark Tome, Episode 1, Part 1. Now you can hear the rest over at The Dark Tome. If you search for it, a new podcast on iTunes, uh, do Fred a favor and search it up and add it to your subscription box. Uh, In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more Fred and David chat. Welcome back, folks. So, Fred, how did how did this all get started? Yeah, well, so you know, Bill DeFries and I, we had the we've been fast friends since the early two thousands, and you know, sort of both have this taste of horror. You know, just New England, there's something in the water up here or something. I, I don't know, but uh, we, you know, th- that that sort of all, you know, long story short, led to us becoming keenly interested in Joe Hill and having the opportunity to pitch to Audible to uh, d- you know develop and adapt Lock and Key, the graphic novel series with Joe Hill and Gabe Rodriguez that we did. Uh, you know That launched of about a year ago, October mm-hmm. 5th-ish, 2015. Um, seems to have been received well. We were certainly very, very proud of it. Um, and you know, if listeners aren't familiar with that, you know, just, just dig up Lock and Key. Uh, but where that sort of springboarded us next is that we we actually asked Joe if he had any short stories that, you know, we we were thinking about this idea. It actually originally um, wanted to do something called like the Dark Hour, but then we didn't want to be locked into something that was an hour long and, and the name was already taken or whatever. <laughs> um, and so, I don't know. And then, it, and then what um, I really wanted to do you know, basically, the, sto- the 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 series is a an anthology horror collection. It's you know, it's, it's sort of like I won't quite call it horror light because the stories all have a real punch, but it's it's not really graphic. It's okay. You know, they're they're sort of fantastical um, and 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 dark, but not necessarily overt horror. Um, so there's there's a, a certain type of story we wanted to, to showcase, but uh, you know, I really want to do something that in this sort of post serial era, I've been. There have been so many derivative, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but there have been so many, uh, you know, found fiction stuff has been done mm-hmm. uh, of the kind of I'm the NPR narrator journalist style has been done. Uh, I really wanted to, and, and then obviously, you know, um, our beloved format of I'm a host and I introduce a show, I play a show and wrap it up. That's also been done, you know, in, in horror fiction. There's a lot of great podcasts that I like in this space that, you know, aren't strict audio drama at all, but like, you know, the nightmare magazines, uh, do a great job and sit and, uh, you know, travel cast back in his heydays shows like that mm-hmm. have the sort of ho- host introduced, um, audio fiction thing done. 
So we're, we were trying to kind of come up with a way to, to get into the story differently. And that's sort of where this idea of, of Cassie, of this, of this book, of that sort of, you know, allows us to go anywhere. Because we, um, we have a, an actual character. And unlike, you know, sort of the uh, Tales from the Crypt style, or you're not going to have this sort of faceless demon that sort of is, is static and just you know, doesn't really develop. You know, Cassie actually will develop as a character and the, the, the frame narrative actually has substance that will help, that will be shaped by the stories that are revealed in the content. So it, it, it took a little bit of noodling around to sort of figure that avenue. And then once I sort of stumbled across that idea, got really in, intrigued. So I'm hoping that's what listeners take away from it as well, that uh, having someone like, you know, Cassie, this girl with, you know, kind of a, a rough life, but is very, very earnest and curious, um, able to sort of explore these stories that, that she provide be, is a good host for the the audience as well. Um, and, you know, we were talking about this very briefly before we got on, David, but this, unlike, say, The Cleansed, which you know, at the time, there really wasn't that much to in serialized fiction. Obviously, you know, Casey and We're Alive, and Kristoff uh, with Leviathan Chronicles, and and Wormwood uh, before either of them even were models. Uh, I was even more things like you know, Canical for Leibowitz, or of uh, you know, the you know, NPR type stuff from the '70s was sort of more my model of serialized fiction, and and now. We are in this new era, uh, thankfully, uh, the sort of we, we do, I mean, literally, have, you know, post PS, the post serial era. <laughs> and, you know, you can you can make certain assumptions about the way you present a story, you know, sort of knowing the way that someone listens. Uh, and so, you know, that shaped certainly how the show presents itself. Really just it is just a sort of sense of fun that we're having, you know, it's stories that have hopefully some grit. Uh, and some and, and lessons to be learned, but there's also they're easier in, easier out. You're not, you know, it's not a grand story arc that's going to take seventy. You know, well, the cleanse was twenty six episodes, sure, thirteen and a half, fourteen hours to complete. These, you know, there will be a development of Cassie, but they, they, the story resolves <laughs> in the in your listening experience. So lower lower continuity in that regard like you, yeah you, do you need it, yeah. to do you need to be able to pick up the do you have to pick up the story from the very beginning in order to follow cassie's development or can you no i, I don't think so i mean maybe the the begin, you know the beginning the setup you know we're gonna do enough of the you know kind of recappy sort of stuff at the beginning of each episode so it'll it'll be more like a you know uh, like television used to be <laughs> where it had to where you you sort of were expected that you could just jump into any episode and sort of follow along it's sort of hopefully kind of by design like well we do we're going to feature a nice uh, selection of writers um so for example we have the joe hill piece starting uh we have this uh, follow-up piece uh the second one will be Catherine m valente okay very different writer uh, but it's a fantastic story as well about uh, witchcraft uh, told from a demon's perspective Ooh. Uh, <laughs> and with a very strong female cast. It's an excellent story. Uh, the Bread We Eat in Dreams. So, you know, Catherine has her own following who, you know, may, might start with her story, but then hopefully are interested in others. So that's that's kind of the whole idea with the, the setup is that there's, you know, many different roads into the series um, and hopefully... You know, people like them all, and especially as we'll have uh, lesser-known writers mixed in with bigger names, uh, we'll also get some exposure for writers who otherwise might not have that opportunity. 
That's really cool. What is what is Catherine? I mean, this is just a me question. What is she best known for? Well, I don't know what she's best known for. What I know her for is she did these. Well, actually, she's kind of the, uh, uh, one of the influences, I would say, of the sort of story within a story. She did these uh, things called the Orphan Tales, uh, which I don't know if it was geared, who it was geared for. Um, I read it in my early 20s and loved it. So I guess it's geared for adults, but it, it's it's sort of like these fables you know, with with stories within the story and like sort of um, the the characters in it sort of are trying to go about solving problems or solving puzzles and they meet some other character and the other character has to tell them this other story about something else that happened in order to get to the part where they you know tell the, the character and the story above it what's going on and she gets like at, at times like four or five layers deep in these stories within stories and i just thought that was a brilliant way um so i know she's she's got a number number of novels and uh short stories out there uh, i think sort of more known in the the sort of fantasy space than you know not this is not you know not in horror but that that's where this fits um you know it's 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 you know it's it's f- fiction with an edge and as as Joe Hill, I've heard heard him, you know, talk says, you know, all writing is fantasy, uh, in the sense that you know, interesting, yeah, even even fiction, you're you're making it up. So, well, this is all super exciting. I'm 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 sad to see the cleanse to go, but I'm glad that you are continuing to churn out really fabulous audio fiction, Fred. Oh, thank you. And you know, I do have to give a shout to our friends at Wondery. Yo. Uh, <laughs> so like they, they this is launching with them uh they you know were very kind to take on another show and you know have helped they help with art they're helping sort of get the word out uh on the launch and you know they also you know, really believed in what we're doing with radio drum revival and the cleansed and uh that's that's been huge like i i was you know recalling to someone the other day like my first conversation with an lopez and you know, it, I was like trying to convince him. Yeah, you really should. You know, like Holly. You know, you know, you're out of Fox. Okay, you, you know the whole LA scene. I mean, this. Is, I think you know, audio drama is a great proving ground for new stories. And da 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 da. And he's like, yeah, that's basically what we're gonna do. It's like, wow. Like finally, like it's great to see you know people who have you know the abilities, um, experience, uh, etc., to launch a real network and be a player in this really rapidly evolving. Um, you know, podcasting space who has such a deep love of serialized, long form scripted drama. Yep. Which, you know, I sort of joke, but it's like we have sort of specialized in this, the most labor intensive uh, form of entertain- audio entertainment, uh, you know, that so many other podcasts are easier to produce. And, you know, from like a business point of view, if you're really think it's important to talk about business making the economics of podcasting work like this is not the first thing you would choose it's mm-hmm. hard and, and that's why radio drama fell off the airwaves in the first place was that it was expensive to produce and you know it was con- perceived that you know it was hard for audiences and you know what if someone tunes halfway through a show you know let's just cut 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 and just get two guys talking about dick jokes for 40 minutes what's sure. so wrong uh, so it's wonderful that all you happy listening people are actually listening because if you weren't there, we wouldn't be here. We would be, I, I don't know where I'd be. I guess it's a bit of an existential question. Because um, would I still be here if no one was listening? I don't know, David. What do you think? Whoa. I don't know. Fred, what is the sound of one hand clapping? It's this. It's me slapping you for asking that question. <laughs> ah! 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 David, no! Ow! Ow! <laughs> Sorry. 
Yeah, I well, I know that I wouldn't be here without you, right? And I wouldn't be here without without Matt and Monique, you know, um, as well as Wondering. So I'm very I'm very grateful for the opportunity that I've been afforded to host this show. Yeah, we're just sort of hacking our way through the jungle here of of, of or I don't know. I I, I use the airplane analogy of of just pushing pushing a, the prop uh, airplane down the runway, hoping it'll it catch flight. So. <laughs> Uh, it's it's maybe I can maybe see the the the, the propellers uh, spinning a little bit now <laughs> these days. So Fred, uh, are is the dark tome up on uh, on social media? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it dark tome everywhere. Twitter, Facebook. Well, not on Snapchat. Dark tome on the, the the obvious ones. Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we are on Stitcher. I will have it on SoundCloud. It'll be under me, Final Rune. Uh, you know, re recast there, and then the uh, thedarktome dot com, and then Dark Tome on iTunes. So uh, we should be everywhere from Google Play to Stitcher to you know, obviously iTunes. From this point forward, we'll be biweekly. So there are two episodes will have dropped today, the twenty eighth of October, when, or depending on when you're hearing this. And uh, we our next story will be the eighteenth of November, and then after that, we're you know, bi-weekly, so we'll be doing like a half, uh, you know, half story each week um, to keep you enticed and interested. Um, we have Ooh. nine stories slotted uh, for the for the run, and they all they all have different flavors. That's the wonderful thing of working with other with all these writers. It's a you know, it's just, it's a literary magazine in audio um, with with some pizzazz. That's that's a lot of fun. I look forward to hearing the whole thing. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, David. It is. It, it's. Can I sleep on the sofa? Yeah, that's fine. It it actually pulls out into a a bed with the little. Let me get. Uh, I'll get you the nice sheets. They got the little okay. waveforms on them. <laughs> Dig it. Dig it. Yeah. Hold on. Let me just uh, open up the sunroof. Uh, and let me let me um, actually the the couch folds out into a water bed. So let me just yank on this. This giant lever. <laughs> Fred, let's. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to read some credits? Okay. By which I mean, tell some increasingly ridiculous lies about our friends. Okay. That's good. I love this. Well, folks, I believe our time has come to a close. So, thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, our theme music. Uh, it was created by DJ Stranger Danger. The track is called Danger Did You Do? You can find more uh, by finding that dude on SoundCloud, DJ Stranger Danger. Our producer today is Matthew Boudreau, who rumor has it Niagara Falls once flowed in beer, but then he drank it all up. And introducing our newest addition to the team, Eli McElveen, who has also guest produced a couple of episodes, but he is joining us now as a producer. I once bought a spell book from Eli McElveen, or at least he claimed it was a spell book. It turned out to be a Quebecois dictionary. So, welcome to the team, Eli. Our researchers today are Monique Boudreau, who uh, once unlocked a rather bitter Mayan curse but managed to stop it. And Heather Cohen, who turned that curse into an app. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge, whom I would normally describe in spooky, sinister, unflattering terms, but I won't because he's right here, and that's really awkward. And you can't see the gun I'm holding to your back now, David, until you give me the ransom I've... <laughs> ah! I'm your host. Oh, no. David Reinstrom. Who's currently converting a uh, Google Street View vehicle into a taco truck. 
um, for people with segues. Oh, that would be dope. I would... 10 out of 10 would taco again. That sounds great. (laughs) I'm David Reinstrom. I'm telling you stories. Trust me. It's an invisible gun. It shoots invisible. It's... Must bleed. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.